Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. We're here with uh, a very, very special guest today, Dr. Linda Nguyen. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Nguyen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to join you. We're excited to hear a little bit about your work uh, as a gastroenterologist, obviously, but uh, your work in uh, supporting gastro uh, gastroparesis patients and uh, ensuring that that patients that are suffering get great treatment. Uh, before we jump into that, we'd love to hear your story about how uh, the GI realm uh, kind of brought you in and, and uh, your interest in, in gastroenterology overall. Yeah, I mean, so I'm someone who loves food and the idea of having individuals out there who uh, cannot eat or who suffer from eating or after eating uh, is really heartbreaking. And it goes back to my mother. So she, when I was an undergrad, uh, she was diagnosed with gastric cancer and had surgery. And she eventually passed away from the, the cancer. But during her years of therapy, the hardest thing for her was she couldn't eat. And, and it affected her in, in such a way, not just nutrition, but the ability to socialize. And because food and eating plays such a role, a huge role in everything that we do, that that that's why I'm passionate about trying to help people, not necessarily cure digestive disorders, but help people uh, be able to manage their chronic disorders. Yeah, I imagine it can be very tough. I personally haven't had to deal with that type of challenge, but I know that uh, gut health plays such an important role in our overall uh, ability to function. And we know how social lives are tied so heavily towards food and just that experience. So uh, it, obviously having happened in, within your family uh, is a great way to kind of prompt you to go in that direction. Yeah, I, I have a, a saying that I like to say when I was really interested in in wines and and good wines. We used to go out and we would talk about the fact that in order to in order to live, you need to eat. But in order to really love living, you need to love eating. And so anything that would sort of take away from that would be something, especially if it's a loved one, um, would be really distressing. So I could see that as a as a really strong motivation to go into the field. So. That's a that's a great intro to to why your focus is where it is, which is on gastroparesis. Can you can you let our audience know a little bit more about what gastroparesis is about, and wh- you know what causes it, and 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 what the people go through when they're experiencing it? Yeah. So so gastroparesis is uh, a, a sent, the paresis part means paralysis, but the reality of it is that the stomach isn't paralyzed, but it's not functioning uh, appropriately. So there's low digestion, low emptying. And, and the most common symptoms are nausea, vomiting, fullness. So early satiety, feeling really full after a small meal, and abdominal pain, bloating. But real, the real cardinal symptoms are you know, nausea and, and vomiting. The, the most common cause, if we can call it a cause, is idiopathic gastroparesis, meaning we don't know what the cause is. And then, you know, 
diabetes is the second most common. Uh, and we see any in neurologic disorders like Parkinson's uh, disease. More and more, we're recognizing post-infectious causes uh, of gastroparesis. So after a viral gastroenteritis, Epstein-Barr virus, we're seeing gastroparesis after COVID uh, infections, independent of the severity uh, of the COVID infections. So there's the post-infectious cause of it. So there, as we as we learn more, we're going to find more more causes in the I think that bucket of idiopathic will be, hopefully will get smaller and, and smaller. Uh, but right now, the most common are idiopathic, uh, diabetic, and then I forgot to mention post-surgical. So surgery that can potentially injure the vagus nerve. So common ones are anti-reflux surgery, like fundoplication for uh, like heart or lung transplant, uh, open heart surgery, any thoracotomy, so any chest surgery that could potentially cause injury to the vagus. I would imagine anterior spine surgery also, where you have to um, mobilize the enteric nervous system and the, the, you know, the intestines. Anytime you're mobilizing that, you're disrupting that really important enteric nervous system. Um, and that can almost be like a, is it almost like a, a post-operative ileus uh, that just never resolves in this case of surgery? You know, not necessarily post-op ileus, because with ileus, we think of it as more of a small, intest small intestine dysmotility or, you know, colonic dysmotility. This is really isolated to the, the stomach. And it's not necessarily, you know, transection uh, of the, the vagus, because then you would think more if there was, you know, complete transection that you would get dysmotility more distal and, you know, the, not just the stomach, but the small bowel and, and the colon. You know, the the vagus innervates the GI tract essentially from the esophagus all the way down to the the right colon. So anything that affects the the vagus can affect the entire GI tract. And and I think we forget, we tend to think of the vagus in terms of the motor or the efferent activities. But we forget that there's a huge sensory component. So even if the motor function is normal, having vagal dysfunction or dysregulation, injury, however you want to term it, can have can be seen as normal motor or motility function, but abnormal sensory. So is that why we see and and I, I learned this some some of it from you when we worked together years ago. Is that part of the reason why it's not really clear on tests to see that the, the stomach isn't functioning properly um, or that food isn't moving at the same pace and yet they're still having uh, dramatic symptoms? So we call it gastroparesis, which suggests, oh, the stomach is paralyzed. But the actual transit time, yeah, it might be slower on average, but it's not dramatically different from normal. And as a result, it isn't really, as you said, the motility problems. It's a sensory issue. It's the afferent fibers, the fibers that are bringing information back up to the brain, where the brain may be just mis misunderstanding, misperceiving what those signals are supposed to mean. Well, I think part of it is that gastroparesis is heterogeneous in terms of the pathophysiology. We dump everybody into this diagnosis of gastroparesis. And I, I kind of equate that to heart failure, right? So congestive heart failure, 
we have systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, valvular heart disease. And we treat those differently because we classify them differently. And the stomach has, you know, the, the fundus or the upper part of the stomach is supposed to relax and that's actually under vagal control. So I think of that more like diastolic dysfunction. So if that part's not working, you can have symptoms, but the, you know, the gastric emptying or the ejection fraction it looks normal, but there, there's a problem with the filling uh, of the stomach. And, and then of course, the actual gastric emptying part is that systolic di- dysfunction. So the contractile, there's something wrong with the contractile activity, but that may be because there's obstruction at the level of the pylorus or that there's dysmotility of the small intestines. So the small bowel, if you have small bowel dysmotility, it's not able to accept the food that's coming out uh, of the stomach. But we dump all uh, all patients with delayed gastric emptying into a singular diagnosis uh, of gastroparesis, which is why we often see that normalizing of the gastric emptying does not necessarily correlate with normalization or resolution uh, of symptoms. That's a great analogy. That that analogy to the heart, and and the as you're talking, it seems like it's really there's two separate groups. One group has a I'm going to probably get this wrong, but one group has sort of a sympathetic overdrive, and the other group has a parasympathetic problem. Um, and so the two things may produce similar symptoms in the way you feel but they're really doing something fundamentally different. And so that's, that's a very interesting um, uh, way of looking at it. Does, it. does it make one group of people more, I won't say susceptible, but more responsive to certain treatments versus another group? Yeah, so we do see you know, autonomic dysregulation in patients with both diabetic and idiopathic gastroparesis. In diabetes, we see more of you know, an autonomic neuropathy, so more widespread. In idiopathic gastroparesis, it tends to be more of a dysregulation as you face them with, you know, abnormalities in the sympathetic nervous system, others in the parasympathetic. And we haven't gotten to the point where we can say, we can personalize the therapy saying, okay, you have high sympathetic activity and so we need to give you a therapy that's going to decrease that. Or you you have a, a problem with, you know, parasympathetic excess or hypo um, uh, parasympathetic function. So, you know, my one of my visions, and JP, I think we talked about this year, years ago, was that it would be great if we could, you know, measure those and characterize people and and show that if you have this signature, then this group of therapies will, will work for you. Right now, where we're at is more, you know, symptom-driven treatments. So if it's nausea, we treat the nausea. If it's pain, we treat treat the pain. And, and I, you know, this this is my personal belief here is that I think this is why we haven't had a new FDA-approved therapy. For gastroparesis in almost 40 in 40 years. I think nine, what, what was it that I said? I think 
1970 was the last metoclopramide was the last FDA approved therapy for wow. for gastroparesis. And so, and we know metoclopramide isn't great. It, there's an FDA black box warning for it, limiting it to 12 weeks because of the risk for tardive dyskinesia. And a lot of patients, by the time they come to me, they've already tried it. It either doesn't work or they've had side effects from it. I'm not saying that, you know, it doesn't work for everyone, but because of the lack of therapies, there's this huge unmet need uh, out there and and patients are are suffering. And and I think that the, the other difficulty when there are limited therapies is when doctors don't know what to do, we do what we're great at. You avoid, right? You're like, <laughs> you've got gastroparesis. I don't know what to do with you. Go to an academic medical center. But there are limited academic medical centers that, that can help take care uh, of patients. So, so we need to you know, have more therapies, therapies accessible to patients that are safe, that then you know, gastroenterologists in the community and even you know, primary care doctors or endocrinologists, neurologists will be comfortable prescribing or providing these therapies. You know, it's it's very similar to a conversation that I had with um, over at Oxford uh, University with Zam Cater, a headache specialist, where we talked about the fact that the state of headache treatments is really very similar, maybe only just an inch beyond where uh, gastroparesis treatment is in that they're still treating and classifying patients based on symptoms, as opposed to, uh, you know, the next level up would be responsiveness to different therapies. They've got one at this point. They've got a, a, a treatment for uh, hemicrania continua, which is using indomethacin. Um, and it's an indomethacin responsive headache. They actually classify it that way, indomethacin responsive headache. But a lot like metoclopramide, um, you've got the same problem uh, with indomethacin in that if you continue to use it for too long, you're going to get an ulcer. It's going to burn a hole through your stomach. And so you, you can't stay on the therapy very long. It works for almost all patients, but they can only use it for so long. So, you know, getting back to, uh, you know, the next level of sort of cutting things up would be understanding the root cause. And that's really, to me, you know, sort of the highest level of understanding. And And I think from what you're saying, I, I'm feeling like there's an opportunity here because you know sort of what's happening in diabetic patients. But in this idiopathic group, you you mentioned some you know infections and prior surgeries and other things. How about how about some emotional traumas? Because what you're talking about here are things that would activate the immune system systemically in a way, especially COVID, we, we know how, how systemic that inflammation can be and how prolonged it can be. Same thing with a, with a major surgery. Are there other things that cause major immune responses like emotional or you know, mental or sleep loss that can actually cause prolonged periods of inflammation that might end up leading to this this sort of manifestation of it, which would be gastroparesis. Do you have patients in your in your intuition after doing this for? I won't date you, but for for a few <laughs> years, you know, have you have you sort of picked up on that as a as a confounding factor that needs to be sorted through? 
Yeah, so the, this, that, that area has actually been studied well, mostly in the irritable bowel world, but we do see this also uh, in gastroparesis and functional dyspepsia, that early childhood trauma is associated with a greater risk of developing a motility disorder or, a, you know, irritable bowel is, is uh, classified as a disorder of gut-brain interaction or DGBI. So having prior childhood trauma increases your risk of developing one of these disorders later in life, and it's associated with more severe symptoms and, you know, worse quality uh, of life. And there was a really elegant study that was done at UCLA in uh, IBS where they found that just talking about the the trauma to not necessarily to a specialist, but a friend, a confidant helped to decrease the severity uh, of, of symptoms. And so we do see a lot of patients with uh, PTSD, with anxiety, depression. Now, when it comes to anxiety, depression, it's hard to know like what's chicken and, and egg, because if you're chronically ill, you can't you, know, you can't eat, you're not getting the care, you're experiencing stigma. Um, and, and we conducted a, a qualitative research study where we found that patients with gastroparesis, you know, experience a significant amount of stigma, not only from friends, family, colleagues, but also the medical uh, system. So if you kind of take all that together, anxiety, depression, it's Almost like, you know, who shouldn't? Like, why don't you uh, feel this way? What's go- what's going on? Because there's all these, you know, physical, mental, emotional things that you're trying to to deal with. So, but we do definitely see, you know, uh, higher rates of PTSD, and I think we're also starting to recognize the medical PTSD. So the trauma that is experienced by patients at the hands of people who, you know, should be helping them. This is really interesting because it ties in with the polyvagal theory of safety and driving a a strong vagal response, a strong parasympathetic response when we are, uh, when we feel safe, when we feel comforted, when we feel emotionally capable and not vulnerable or under emotional stress. And what what this does is when we are in a space or a feeling of lacking safety, it pushes us initially into a sympathetic overdrive or a sympathetic state, theoretically, of course, but we can see it with the number of uh, conditions that somebody is experiencing and the severity of those symptoms as they increase. And what it can also drive you into is what what Dr. Stephen Porges, the inventor of the, the theory came up with or coined was the dorsal vagal response, where we go into a freeze response at the most severe range of this. And so the idea of talk therapy, just being able to get these emotions cleared out of the the internal kind of workings of the person, allow for symptomatic improvement very clearly because it's driving that feeling of being safe and being able to talk about these issues. And that helps to really drive this physiological response to a psychological trauma that may have occurred in the past. Yeah. And, and, it's, not, and it's not to say that this is purely, you know, psychological, because I, I don't want people to walk away to say, okay, gastroparesis, it's in, quote, in, you know, in, in your head. 
it, it really there is a physiologic abnormality there, you know, with the you know persistently increased sympathetic tone. There's also physiologic abnormalities going on in, in the gut with the enteric nervous system. So you know, it, it there is a two way connection there, and you have to think of treating gastroparesis as treating the whole person or all that innervates the the stomach. And so if you treat the stomach in isolation without treating the sympathetic and the you know emotional trauma, then you're you're not going to be successful. But if you also only treat the PTSD, the anxiety, the depression, you're not going to make an impact in, in the stomach. And that trust is key. Like you're, you know, explaining well, one, validating the, the symptoms, explaining the physiology or the pathophysiology uh, as we know it, and, and then being there and supporting the, the patients. The, those are all key key factors there. You know, one of the things um, that we've studied extensively was looking at whether or not, it, the way you described it, you know, how could you not end up with anxiety or depression if you've been through this gastroparesis experience, you've been to hospitals, you've been to doctors, you've been sort of scoffed at, you've been disregarded, your experiences are being classified or um, dismissed. Even by friends and family, there's social stigma and there's also the loss of social uh, engagement around food um, in a positive way. All of those things would lead a person to be depressed. The interesting thing that we found in the studies that we did, and we did it not just in this field, we did it in fibromyalgia, we did it in, in, uh, in widespread pain conditions beyond that. Um, what we found was that the, uh, the, the, the diagnostic histories did not necessarily show that one condition preceded the onset of the others. So, because what we were looking for was to try to figure out whether or not there was one sort of index condition something that was leading to the rest of the symptoms the way we were describing just now, where because of gastroparesis, you're going to have anxiety, you're going to have depression because of those things. It turned out that in just as many cases, the depression and the anxiety were actually diagnosed before the symptoms onset of gastroparesis or fibromyalgia or other things. And that suggested to me in particular that none of these things are index conditions in and of themselves are actually a very widespread set of symptoms. Yeah, the underlying condition is really a nervous system dysfunction that is uh, an imbalance the autonomic nervous system that leads to that inflammation, leads to all of the, the experience, the perception of these problems. Yeah, there's no question. It's a multifactorial uh, challenge and the underlying autonomic kind of state that a person is in is going to drive towards a particular direction. And in, in, in my simplistic view of it as a gastroenterologist, not not a neurologist, you know, when when I think about the autonomic nervous system, it affects everything, right? From our sweating, pupillary dilation, all of the the viscera, the motor, and the sensory components of it. And so if you have autonomic dysregulation or autonomic dysfunction, it can affect multiple symptoms. And, the, and you know, 
in medical school, we'll, we're taught that, you know, one person cannot have multiple diseases, the whole like Occam's razor type thing. And so when patients come to us with GI issues, with dizziness, with headache, with bladder pain, with fibromyalgia, dizziness, it rashes, it, you start to think, well, how do I put all that together? It must be in their head. It must be psychosomatic. But the reality of it is all those systems are innervated by the autonomic nervous system. Of course, there's also the immune system too, but the autonomic nervous system also helps to regulate the, the immune system. So there's that interconnection there. And so, it, you know, whenever I think, whenever I see a patient with multi-system involvement, my first question is, you know, start, I start looking at their autonomic nervous system and then looking at the, their immune uh, system. And there's obviously, there's probably patients with genetic predisposition. The, the most common one that I'm seeing these days is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or type 3 uh, EDS, which is a lot more common than I, you know, we ever thought it was. JP, to go back to your question of how long I've been doing this, 20 years ago, I think I saw a rare patient with EDS, and now I diagnose at least one new patient a week. Um, and so, you know, I think we're we're learning. We're we are doing a better job of listening to to patients, but there's a long way. So, so one of the one of the prior podcasts that we did was with a a friend of mine who actually was a colleague for a short period of time. She's a nurse practitioner. And she is, per she herself has Ehlers-Danlos and she has been using vagus nerve stimulation for, uh, for a while now. Um, and it has had really a dramatic effect on her life in many positive ways, not just symptoms, uh, but also uh, she was able to get pregnant and have a child and, and uh, really a very normal, uh, you know, gestational period for her uh, and for the baby. So it was something that was a big, a big deal for her. So in any event, I, as, you, as you look at Ehlers-Danlos patients coming through your door, uh, remember you know, that, that, that that was a, an effective uh, therapy. One other, one other thing, um, and I want to sort of, I know this is a, a big point for uh, Dr. Habib, is the microbiome and the importance of the integration of, of the gut health uh, microbiome and its effect on the central nervous system. Um, and and so in these gastroparesis patients, do you see a, or even in IBS patients, do you see a significantly um, dysregulated microbiome on dysbiosis? Yeah, we, we, do, we do see it, especially in, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, especially those with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The, the question always comes down to is, a, what's chicken and what's egg, right? So what did a dysregulation of the microbiome lead to these symptoms? Or are these conditions kind of inflammatory conditions that the inflammation is then disrupting the tight junctions and, and, and the microbiome? And, and again, I, I think there's you're going to find patients kind of in both, you know, buckets or both cat categories because we can't really simplify everybody into here's one mechanism uh, of, of disease. So, so we, you know, we do recognize that 
you know, the microbiome is involved in these disorders. The question comes down to what do we do uh, about it? You know, probiotics, I think, have variable effects in, in quote, normalizing the, the microbiome and, and leading to symptom improvement. And even studies like doing, you know, fecal microbiota transplantation or FMT, we don't, other than um, recurrent, you know, C. diff infections, we haven't found kind of a, a role for that, that yet. There are things that we do know that, that can negatively impact the microbiome that we can, um, you know, that, that we can shift or we can uh, influence. One is diet, right? So ultra processed, like, you know, eating ultra processed foods, high sugar, you know, the sugar additives, those are all things that can negatively influence the microbiome. But eating whole foods, like more of a Mediterranean diet or fermented foods can, can increase the diversity. Sleep, we know that, you know, disordered sleep is associated with dysregulation of the microbiome. And so the, the microbiome, it, it's not static. It, it changes. And so when we, when you do a stool microbiome test, you're really just looking at one snapshot that day that you, you, you got the stool. So it could be impacted by what you ate, you know, the two days before you, you, you did that or what your sleep was like. So we have to kind of look at it in terms of what are the static parts? What, what are the parts that, that are fixed? And then how can we influence that, whether it's through food, through probiotics, symbiotics, you know, prebiotics, all, all those things that we, we still need to figure out. When it comes to the microbiome with the stomach specifically, a really common thing that people talk a lot about from a practitioner side is H. pylori. Have you seen much of a, a correlation between H. pylori presence or infection and uh, gastroparesis at all? Necessarily, especially in the U.S., we don't see a lot uh, of H. pylori. And in Northern California, I, I would say I see very little H. pylori. Um, and of all my patients with gastroparesis, I would say a handful have H. pylori or they've had H. pylori and treating it doesn't really make an impact in their symptoms. That being said, because it is considered a carcinogen, if you find H. pylori, you should offer treatment, not for the gastroparesis, but for the sake of H. pylori. Certainly, yeah. The, um, I was going to ask because about sugar, uh, you, you talked about highly processed foods and sugar intake having an impact on it. And, and maybe it's just because I finished writing, writing a chapter of a book about metabolism. Do you see a shift in mitochondrial health? Do you see oxidative phosphorylation? Are you seeing more glycolysis? Are you seeing a shift away from, I mean, how does like a ketogenic diet where you're relying more on fatty acid burning than, than glucose. How, how do those uh, play into, and, and has there been work looking at um, what uh, mitochondrial health looks like in patients with gastroparesis? Uh, good question. We have not looked at it or I'm not aware uh, uh, of that. In terms uh, of, you know, metabolism or metabolic rate, the, we do 
observations, we we do see an interesting phenomena in, in that uh, about 30% of patients with gastroparesis have a BMI over 25, uh, which makes you think, how can this happen if they have nausea, vomiting, and generally, when you look at the average caloric intake uh, of someone with gastroparesis, between 900 and 1,200, you know, calories, uh, kilocalories per per day. So it, it's, it doesn't match the energy in, energy out uh, equation. And you know, we we started to do a study which you know ran into challenges uh, because of COVID. Is we were looking at resting energy expenditure using like a metabolic cart and, and looking at the difference between what you measure versus what you calculate based on the you know current formulas that we have based on you know height, weight, activity, age, sex, etc. on what your caloric needs are. And you know in the patients that we were able to enroll, we found that there was a discrepancy between like their resting energy expenditure and their calculated caloric need. We also found in looking at their dietary intake that a lot of patients may have been calorie neutral in terms of they were eating the calories that they needed, but they were protein deficient. The majority of the calories were coming from carbohydrates. And whether or not that is contributing to the obesity or the weight gain that we're seeing, or could it be the medications, we we don't know yet, but the, it, it's an interesting phenomena or observation that we're seeing, which goes back to adding stigma to patients, right? So if you have a BMI of 35 with gastroparesis and going into a, an emergency room vomiting, the looks that, that the patients get, that how, how can you have gastroparesis if your BMI is 35? The tough uh, thing to navigate, right? Because you've got this, this concept of metabolic syndrome and metabolic challenges being associated with overeating or overconsumption of calories when in reality it may simply be the uh, lack of ability to utilize those calories more effectively and so there's more storage and and a higher carbohydrate intake generally driving that in a similar line i'm i'm uh, intrigued by this concept of root causes and uh, there was one that uh, i wanted to potentially bring up with you if you'd seen it at all and that is the use of uh, semaglutide as uh, obviously uh, diabetic medication slash uh, being utilized off-label for weight challenges. Have you seen any issues with gastric motility being reduced uh, secondary to the use of uh, semaglutide medication? Yeah, so the whole class of the GLP-1 uh, agonists do slow ga- gastric emptying. And, and there have been studies that have looked at gastric emptying before and after. Um, so in anyone that, you know, is on one of these agents, I will take them off the, the therapies before measuring a gastric emptying test. Now, delay, delaying gastric emptying and causing gastroparesis, those are, you know, 
those are different leaps there. Majority of the patients that, um, actually every patient that I, I've taken care of who who is on a GLP-1 agonist and symptomatic, if you reduce the dose or stop the medication, the, the delaying gastric emptying go, goes away. I know there are people who have you know, talked about stopping the medication and continuing to have you know, gastroparesis or having it cause gastroparesis. We don't know, you know, I don't, um, there's no case reports uh, of that or why that would happen if it, if it's cleared the system, could these agents unmask something? And again, a lot of patients who are on these medications already have diabetes. So could this have been diabetic gastroparesis that was unmasked because you delayed the gastric emptying? further than um, than it had previously been, been delayed. Um, especially with the long-acting uh, GLP-1 agonist, people have to remember that stopping means you have to stop it for at least five half-lives. And so, so for some of the longer-acting ones where the half-life is seven days, you're talking about 35 days of waiting. And so uh, oftentimes what I'll see is They'll stop it for one or two weeks and say, oh, I'm still symptomatic. It must not be the medication. Yeah, definitely not enough time to get a very clear sense. And and that's an important factor to consider uh, for any practitioners out there that might be listening to this. Why don't we shift gears now? We've talked a lot about root causes. We've talked a lot about things that drive gastroparesis potentially. Um, Why don't we shift gears to therapies and tools that uh, have worked in your practice that you are utilizing on a day-to-day basis. Why don't you let us know about a couple that or a few that uh, that have stuck out as being very beneficial for patients that have suffered from gastroparesis? I can't say there's any therapies that are very beneficial for for, for gastroparesis. That goes back to the uh, metoclopramide is the only FDA uh, approved therapy for for gastroparesis, and that you know not. We're talking about almost 40 years uh, of no new FDA-approved therapies. So, you know, so it means we do a lot of of trial and error in terms of treating symptoms. So anti-nausea medications for patients with nausea and vomiting, neuromodulators for for abdominal pain, things like, you know, low-dose tricyclic antidepressants. But you have to be careful with those because they can further slow gastric emptying, you know, uh, gabapentin, pregabalin. Again, the, the, there's limited data on the efficacy of these me- medications. The vagus nerve stimulation is something that I do uh, talk to pa- patients uh, about. You know, we uh, previously, there, there is a device that is the gastric electrical stimulator that is an implanted device on the stomach but essentially it works on the uh, vagal a- afferents, but, it, but it's implanted. Having non-invasive options for vagus nerve stimulation, uh, I think is something that, uh, that patients are very much interested in and physicians uh, are, are interested in because to date, we don't know who benefits from the, this therapy. In, in, in our pilot study, of uh, 15 patients with idiopathic gastroparesis, we found that about 40% of patients uh, responded to the therapy after four four weeks. 
a, and we used a composite gastroparesis symptom index, you know, um, score, and that if patients had a, at least a 0 0.7, uh, 0.75 reduction in their symptoms, we define that as response. So about 40% of our patients met that criteria. So we got 40% who improve, 60% who don't. So who are the 40? Who are the 60? You know, could the 60% improve with different stimulation parameters? So th there's so much unknown there, but I think there's a lot of ex excitement and intrigue in, in the, this modality because of the non-invasive nature and that we are potentially targeting, you know, one aspect uh, of the pathophysiology, which is the autonomic dysregulation that we do see. So um, one of the things that uh, has been pretty fascinating to me recently is the, the effect that vagus nerve stimulation has on mitochondria, which I, I don't think gets anywhere near the same press, if you will, that the effect that uh, vagus nerve stimulation has on the immune system does. But it turns out that the same receptor, that alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, that vagus nerve stimulation is so famous for affecting immune cells, is actually present on the surface of mitochondria. And uh, that vagus nerve stimulation has the ability, through that same release of acetylcholine, to affect mitochondrial health and reduce oxidative phosphorylation. So it really is uh, both incredibly in intriguing, but also a little bit depressing that COVID interfered with getting that, uh, that study done on, uh, on metabolism and mitochondrial health in uh, gastroparesis patients. Because I think that might be maybe another clue as to what patients should be using vagus nerve stimulation as a, as a treatment where their benefits will come versus uh, patients for whom the etiology of their disease is just different. So it would be, it would be wonderful if there were a way to sort of follow up with that, uh, that study and continue that research, um, maybe in the context of, of looking at it as a, a sign for what patients should and should not be using um, various different um, modalities. It's an interesting thought. I'm going to have to sit down with that a, a little bit. We were looking at it more in terms of you know, can we impact symptoms by uh, changing the diet to a more protein plant-based uh, diet? And so the, so that was our original intention. But in terms of looking at it from seeing which patients might be more responsive to vagus nerve stimulation, I'll reach back out to kind of play around with that idea a little bit more. Okay, that sounds good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. In practice today, uh, you, you generally utilize a few therapies. I know we talked a little bit about the study. We know it's a multifactorial issue. Gastroparesis is not a single uh, factor that drives it. We know that there's idiopathic and, gast and diabetic sides to the diagnoses. We know that there's so many other buckets within that idiopathic frame as well. So when it comes down to it, what are some of the, let's kind of go with the simplified top three, top five tools that you utilize, whether lifestyle wise or otherwise with your patients that have been suffering from gastroparesis? Yeah. So 
I always start with diet and, and lifestyle. So they, things that can be modified. So, you know, easily digestible, small particle foods, avoiding the ultra processed foods, making sure, you know, sleep, if there is disordered sleep to work on that. And if they need to work with a sleep specialist, you know, make the, make the referral. And then, you know, treating, you know, the chronic stress to, you know, to tell someone to go live a stress-free life doesn't exist, but to really understand how you can mitigate the effects of chronic life stress on your, your system. So whether it's through, you know, exercise, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, there's uh, lots of evidence on gut-directed hypnosis in, in, in patients. Virtual reality is another uh, way. So, so those are kind of the things in, in terms of diet and lifestyle that I, that I talk to everybody uh, about. And then the other therapies, uh, you know, you go from, you know, least invasive to mo- most invasive and then based on the severity uh, of symptoms. And it's a partnership. And so, you know, I talk to patients, you know, about the different options. And I don't, I don't go through the whole menu of options, but, you know, at this stage of your symptoms and what you tried, here are a few options. What resonates with you? And, you know, here are my suggestions as to why, and whether it's medications, acupuncture, you know, Vegas nerve stimulation. The, you know, it really depends on the patients, what their goals are. And, ulti- and the reality of it in, in our healthcare system is also what their um, financial abilities are. So, you know, there, there's evidence that acupuncture helps, but acupuncture costs money. And so if you don't have access to a good acupuncturist, and if it's not covered by your insurance, it's not a resource or an option for you. Yeah, that's fair. Um, obviously, patients need to be A, willing uh, and B, capable in, in every therapy that we provide. And I love that you're starting with a lot of the lifestyle, modifiable lifestyle factors that we know are, are in some way uh, addressing or, or causing some of these challenges to begin with, whether it's dietary or uh, stress management related. And so, uh, really glad to hear that that is being taken care of, uh, in, in your patients. So that's really wonderful to hear JP, anything to kind of finish it up and, uh, wrap up our call. No, I look forward, I look forward to following up on a number of different uh, topics. Um, really great to reconnect. Um, appreciate all the work that you've been doing. Um, and, uh, I look forward to the dialogue continuing. Great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I think, yeah, this is obviously a a topic that is near and dear to my heart that I'm passionate about. So I could talk about this for hours. (laughs) You you all may get bored by the end of it, but but I could talk on and on uh, uh, about food, digestion, and and really more patient-centric care. Absolutely. And it's been an absolute honor to meet you and to connect here and learn from you. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. And for those who are listening and you got to this point, please share this with one person who you think you could utilize this information to help upgrade their health. Have a wonderful day.